This is A Smaller Life, a podcast about making more conscious and more ethical choices within our crafts. Hosted by me, Saskia de Feiter. I am a small business owner who wants to grow by going smaller. Together with local makers, I make tools, yarns and accessories for knitters that want to buy less, buy better, make more and make it last. Keeping away the overwhelm and all the ridiculousness of overconsuming within our crafts. That's what I'm focusing on. In the podcast, I endeavor to answer the questions we ask ourselves before we start a project. What do we buy? Where do we buy? Who do we buy from? Or don't we buy at all, but use what we already have? Because when you think about what you do, you take more time and end up with less of everything. As a result, you'll get a smaller life. In my journey to find out how I can be relevant as a small business owner in these days, I talked to Linda de Ruiter. She is the owner of the Slow Wardrobe. With her layer cakes designs and her home brand yarns, she works to get a brand that is super inclusive and eco-conscious. We talk about how she got where she is today, about how much we have in common and what I can learn from her. So learn and be inspired by Linda. Hi, Linda. Hello. It's so nice to have you on the podcast. It's lovely to be here. I'm really looking forward to this chat. Oh, me too. I was on your podcast that you have on YouTube called The Slow Wardrobe. And uh, I was talking about my life story. Basically, it took me a a whole hour (laughs) (laughs) because we both really like to talk. And um, you said you were biting your tongue the whole time because you heard so many things that we have in common. And at the moment, you couldn't talk about it because at that time it was my interview and now it's the other way around and I'm super super curious to hear all about your journey and how you became the owner of the slow wardrobe and how you started the slow wardrobe so please tell us all about it okay okay well um the first pang of recognition for me when we were talking and I heard your story was when you were telling us that you are from Zeus Flanders which is like this bottom corner of Holland, which is kind of separate from the rest. And you were describing about like kind of being disconnected from the country and being disconnected from, you know, where all the happening things were when you were in your teens. And I recognize that because uh, my family, me and my family, we moved away from Hilversum, which is a bigger town in Holland where I was born, to a little village. Um, it was only five miles away but you know when you're a kid that's a, a long distance and you're having to depend on parents taking you back and forth or jumping on a bicycle which is what I did and so when I started secondary school I had to cycle back and forth to Hilversum and that kind of disconnect of having to make an effort and having to travel to get to where the action is that really rung true for me so um so I went to a grammar school in Hilversum and wasn't sure whether I would choose to study psychology or do something with fashion it was as loose as that and there was a glut of psychologists that they were predicting it was very popular and so I was worried that I wouldn't find a job 
And um, in terms of uh, fashion, I couldn't stand the idea of going to an art college because they kept asking me for a portfolio. And I thought, well, I thought a portfolio was something that I have when I finish, not when I start. So I kind of turned my back on that and went to a school in Amsterdam, which is a higher technical school, um, a high school uh, called the uh, Meester Kutsier uh, Institute of Fashion Technology would be the best translation probably. And uh, it's a four-year degree where um, I finished after the four years, having been introduced to some businesses with some study placements in the third year and not being very impressed with what I had seen of the fashion industry. Little did I know that a lot of the things that uh, affronted me had nothing to do with fashion and everything to do with bigger business, but I didn't know that yet at the time. So I wasn't very enamored with the idea of working in fashion. And although I was always designing and making my own clothes and designing and knitting my own knitwear, I did not have the confidence to do anything with that professionally. So um, I took a job that I was offered right at the end of getting my degree by one of the companies where I did my placement. And that was in like a mini internal advertising agency that was part of a buying cooperative that helped small independent fashion shops buy stuff together so that they could you know, combine their buying power and negotiate better prices with the bigger companies that they were buying from. So I worked there for a year and a half, still didn't like anything I saw about the fashion industry and kind of walked away from there into marketing and then later on Revlon. And it was an ex-colleague of Revlon who met, moved from Revlon to the body shop that ended up indirectly hiring me for a, jo a job at the body shop, which was in product development, which I really I was really interested in that. Not as much the marketing side of things, but the product development side I liked a lot. And uh, so I ended up moving to the UK in 1992 and I worked for the body shop for about six years and um, I ended up in a, a really big role at the body shop. And one of the takeaway values for me was I never, ever wanted to work for a big company again. And when I left the body shop, I had a short foray into trying to set up a conscious business myself, trading with products that I imported from West Africa. But... Um, what would happen if I would take those products to wholesale shows, for example, in Europe, is that big brands would come and take photographs or sweet talk me into selling them some samples, and they would just rip that off and, and copy them. So I didn't feel that that was going to be a big success. And then through through contacts, I learned of a change management consultant business, a guy who worked with some friends and acquaintances. They were all independent freelancers, if you like, and they would all separately try and land contracts in change management. And then depending on the skill base and the different nationalities that were needed to fulfill their contracts, they would pull in different people. 
So I uh, joined that group and for about a year and a half, two years or so, I worked with that group doing change management work, which actually, funnily enough, had me traveling back and forth to uh, Holland quite a lot. But I did stay in the UK. I was with an English partner. We had our first child. We had a daughter. And when I finished the last contract in that uh, consultancy work, I was three months pregnant with our sons, our twin sons, who are now 18. So coming away from that last contract, we wanted to try and free me up so that it would, there wouldn't be a big pressure for me to go back to work. So we downscaled our house and everything and made sure that we could survive on just my husband's salary. And uh, so that's what we did. I had the twins. I was at home with the twins for a couple of years. We both really valued the idea of uh, one of the two of us always being at home to be with the kids. And we didn't feel that that necessarily always had to be me, but at least one of us. So when I started to feel like doing something again, starting to work again, I initially felt that in terms of conscious living, if you like, I, I felt quite moved to kind of give something back to society. I felt quite quite blessed in a way that I'd had a chance to have a proper career, etc. And now I was here with these two little boys and um, I thought rather than run away and go back into the fast lane of another busy job, is there something I can find that allows me to give something back? And I found the Twins and Multiple Births Association here in the UK called TAMBA. And they ran a helpline for parents or expectant parents of multiples to give out information and support around any and every subject that you can think of with regards to multiples. And so for a year and a half, I volunteered on their telephone helpline and gradually in the process discovered that uh, not only were they struggling to get qualified people to work on the helpline, but they also had difficulty uh, managing the hours and, and the, the rotas for the, the helpline. So I put kind of a, a little job description together for myself and I offered for, you know, peanuts for a very small reward kind of thing, not really even a proper job, but for a small reward to uh, run the helpline and manage the rota for them, which meant that because of my change management qualifications, I was able to get the training of the people on the helpline to, you know, a higher, a higher level, I could get them a, a first step on the counseling ladder qualification kind of thing. So, so I did that for a while. And um, that changed when a friend of mine asked me if I could join her just for one Saturday at the Knitting and Stitching Show in London. And she had to manage her own little stand there. But on the Saturday afternoon, she was also teaching a workshop. So if she would be running a course, she would be away from her stand for a couple of hours. So I went with her and kind of saw what she was doing in the morning and learned on the spot. And then she went away and I just kind of took over and did the selling off the stand for the afternoon until she was back. And I absolutely loved it. And in the car on the way home, we were kind of, you know, counting the day's takings kind of thing. <laughs> and, you know, in the car on the way home. And and I would say to her, Helen, we can 
we need to come up with a, a a reason for me to have a little stand as well. And then we can have little stands next to each other and cover each other. You know, if you're doing a, you, you're doing a, a, a course, then I'll look after your stand. And if we're building and building up and breaking down, I'll carry your boxes because she was a lot older than I am. She's 19 years older than I am. So, and she says, oh, that would be so much fun. We, we would just get on so well. So we we said, okay, okay, now what can we do? What can we start with? You know, let's come up with a product. And she had written a number of books about um, uh, dyeing uh, plant fibers. So drying, dyeing cotton and linen, et cetera. And she said, you know what? I think I've got another book in me. How about we write a book together about dyeing wool because it's you know it's it's fundamentally different the process that are used you if you want to dye wool you set it with heat you set the dye with heat and if you want to dye plant fibers you need time not heat but time so it's it's a fundamentally and you use different dye stuffs as well so it's a fundamentally different process and she said I'd love to make the dyeing process of wool accessible for anyone and everyone so they can do it at home so what year was that's that? what we did I said, that was what well, we started talking about that in 2008 and uh, the book came out in I think 2010 if you want to build or grow your business in textile crafts why don't you join our online community for the small monthly contribution of only 10 euros, which is basically $10-ish. You get to hang out, learn from, and share your business and your personal craft journey with all the lovely people there. Support the podcast at the same time, and you get everything wrapped into one loving package. I would love to welcome you there. Go to patternshift.fm and click community. And while you're there, Sign up for our emails so you'll never miss a thing. Because mm. obviously in the 70s uh, and in the 60s, there was also like a peak in these kinds of things. Yeah. But it's a super trend right now. So um, for this new wave, you were early. Yes. Well, uh, knitting was just starting to become a thing. You know, it was starting to become popular Ravelry was on the scene already. I think I joined Ravelry in 2008 as well. So, you know, it was it was it was starting to happen in the knitting industry and um I didn't I had never turned any of my knitting designs into patterns. So, I didn't know how good I was at that. So, I wanted to have a product before I would really start concentrating on on design so with her idea of doing a book about dyeing my idea to support that if you like was with the idea of creating a knitting kit that would have a hank of yarn like sock yarn for example undyed sock yarn some dyes and dyeing instructions and a knitting pattern and knitting needles so it would have everything in the little kit to dye your own yarn and then knit a project out of it. So, uh, and the first, I had three kits to begin with. It was either a pair of socks with a hank of four ply sock yarn, or it was a hank of DK 
and uh, then you could choose from either a hat or a scarf. And, you know, that was, or you could also buy the dyes separately. Those were my products that I started with. And in 2008, we tried out whether the, whether the project had legs by Helen taking out a slightly bigger stand at the Knitting and Stitching show and then me putting my stuff on one corner of her stand and see if people liked it. And we got so much positive response and people liked it so much that I thought, you know what, I think this has got legs. I think I can do something with this. And then I literally built it up from very, very tiny with nothing, you know, just spent 300 pounds on on dies and little, you know, and, and little project bags that I printed on myself, things like that, hand printed the name of the company, which was Tall Yarns and Tails at the time, and um, and sold my little kits. And then in February of 2009, the first ever Unravel in Farnham took place, and it was just a one-day event at that time, that first Unravel. And that was the first show that I did completely on my own, you know, without Helen with me. The, fo- the years following that, I did a whole, we did a whole bunch of shows together and the stand just gradually grew bigger and bigger until, um, so I introduced my own brand of yarn, which was Soliloquy Sock Lace, which is an unusual yarn weight because I felt that the gap between lace weight yarns, which, which run about 800 meters per 100 grams, and four plies, which are 400 meters per 100 grams, I thought there was a real, really big gap between those two. So, yeah. and the, so there was that, together with the fact that most socks knitted out of four ply, I don't actually find that comfortable to wear and unless they are knitted tightly. If they're not knitted tightly, I can actually feel the stitches around my feet and I don't find that comfortable. So I felt that what we could do with was a finer sock yarn. So that's a plus, you know, or a thicker lace weight yarn, however you want to look at it. So the idea behind the sock lace was that you could use it for shawls and scarves, etc., or you could knit socks with it. But instead of 60 stitches around the foot, it's 72 stitches. Or if it's a big size, 80 stitches. That's a great idea. And it works a treat. It works really well. The other thing was that, of course, with all the hand dyeing that was going on, the prices of a hank of yarn were going up. And if I would buy a hank of hand dyed yarn, four ply sock yarn, and knit a pair of socks that pair of socks would be done within a week. So it's like, man, I've spent, you know, 15 pounds and I've blown it in a week and now I need another, I need another 15 pound hang. <laughs> Are you such a fascinator or? Um, yeah, I am, yeah. I usually take two weeks for no, a pair I'm, of socks I'm, when I'm, I work. I'm, I'm, a fa- I'm a fast knitter. I am a fast knitter. I, I don't have to look at what I'm doing most of the time. But the thing is, I think that I'm a fast knitter too. So I am kind of blown away by that. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> So I, I want to see you knit a pair of socks. <laughs> no wonder that you thought of that thinner yarn because yes. some people think it's no, it will take me longer, but it won't take you any longer. I wanted a bit more, more of a bang for my buck, you know. I can totally see that. Yes. So if you have eighty stitches per round, or at least seventy-two stitches per round, then it's going to take you a little bit longer to finish your pair of socks. Which Absolutely. I like, I quite like the idea of. 
so so that's where the idea then came from and um and the other For thing your slow wardrobe yeah exactly slow wardrobe fast <laughs> knitting still slow wardrobe yes yes so talk to me a little bit more about that slow wardrobe and what does that look like for you well yeah because you know here we are with tall yarns i've got my own yarns and you know they're selling well it's all going fine people walk onto the stand and say okay i'll have these yarns i'll have these needles i was selling lots and lots of needles as well i've turned into a proper needle freak and people would say um you know i'll have this and i'll have that but where did you buy that dress that you're wearing? And I would be wearing one of my smocks, which I just made myself. That is just stuff that I, you know, designed and made and wore and whatever and never did anything else with. As, and I would say, well, you know, it's just it's just a, a linen apron, really, that I made for myself so that I've got big pockets to put my knitting in. And I said, oh, man, I wish I could buy it somewhere. You know, so after six months or so, of hearing that time and again at the shows, I thought, you know what, if I make, if for every show, I make like six or 10 smocks and take them with me to the show and just hang them in the back. Every time somebody asks, can I buy one of those? I'll whip one out and say, yeah, here it is. And yeah. I'll be able to go home and I will have earned back the uh, cost of the stand. So it'll make everything, you know, it'll make everything run smoother. So I did that for a while. And, you know, so the first time that I brought a couple of smocks to a show was at the Knitting and Stitching Show in Harrogate in November. I had brought six and they sold on the first morning. And people said, oh, can I have one bigger or can, can I have one smaller or whatever? So, you know, I had some months of that. And I said to Helen, you know what? I really could do with some help making these things because... I don't want to turn into a mini clothing factory. You know, I don't want to, I'm sitting here sewing these flipping smocks in the run up to a show. <laughs> and I, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to be knitting. I, I don't have any more time to do my knit designs. So then she was thinking about that and she went and exhibited at the festival of quilts in Birmingham the following August, eight, nine months after I sold my first smocks at a show. And Andrea, the lady who still makes the smocks and all of layer cake now walks onto uh, onto Helen's stand and they have a, a conversation about whatever Helen was demonstrating on her sewing machine and they discover that oh my god they live in the same village we didn't realize and blah 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 and Andrea tells Helen what she does and Andrea says well actually by profession I'm a cutter and a cutter is somebody who turns the sketch and the brief of a fashion designer into a, what's called a toile, which is the first 3D model of what the final garment is going to look like. And oh, then that's the, perfect. Yes. And then on the basis of the feedback from the designer, that toile gets adapted and turned into a, a clothing pattern, you know, a, a garment pattern. So she said, I'm a cutter and I've worked with some of the big designers. I mean, it's amazing. She, you know, she has... Uh, she's worked with some of the really, really proper big fashion names. So she knows what uh, what it's like to to be in that industry. But she said, I'm, I'm not working as a cutter at the moment. I'm running a business with a friend making bespoke wedding dresses. 
but um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of getting out of that, and so I'm looking for something else, and I'm not really sure yet. And meanwhile, you know, Helen is thinking, "Oh my God! Oh my God! Oh my God!" <laughs> so she's coming back, Helen, my angel, and says, "I found you the right person. You need to go and talk to this lady called Andrea." Turns out, Andrea is living in the next street to mine. No. Yes, if I stand in front of my house and look in the right direction, I can see the building that she lives in. It's unbelievable. <laughs> wow, meant to be. Absolutely. So then for the next two years, I would give her a pile of fabrics and a brief. And, you know, a week or two weeks later, she would return with a pile of clothes. So we did that for a couple of years. And then in 2013... I was going to go to exhibit uh, without Helen. Helen was not going to come with me. I was. It was going to be a show that I was going to do on my own. I'd been doing a couple of shows on my own by then, but I was getting bigger. So more often than not, Helen came with me to help me with my stuff rather than to sell her stuff alongside me. She was trying to take a little bit of a step back because she was getting older and, and whatever. So she often just went along for the jolly but she couldn't come with me to exhibit at Yarndale up in Skipton which is actually where I saw you for the first time yes. when you exhibited at Yarndale I think that was a couple of years later but anyway I was going to go to Yarndale and another you know like acquaintance somebody had that I'd met at the shows was going to come with me and sell her knitting design. She had done a couple of designs in soliloquy by then. So just like I used to have a corner on Helen's stand, this lady was going to have a corner on my stand, sell her stuff and help me sell mine. And then she had to cry off. She couldn't make it. She couldn't come along with me. And um, I thought, oh my God, well, I, I can't do it on my own. My stand is too big. I won't be able to build it on time. And then I won't be able to handle the crowds all on my own because I was getting very busy. And uh, I thought, you know what? I'm going to ask if Andrea will do it, if Andrea will come to a show with me. So I asked her and Andrea said, well, I don't know. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not very good at knitting. Not true. She's very good at knitting. So, so she was kind of talking herself down. And I said, you don't have to know anything about knitting you know about the clothes and that's what I'll ask you to be busy with, with the garments, with, with layer cake. So I'll be a little bit more about layer cake. You mentioned it before, um, but we haven't heard what layer cake actually is. Of course. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, the smocks that I was wearing, um, where it all started with just, you know, making more of those once, once Andrea was involved, I all of a sudden had a translator for my design ideas. And rather than having to cut and figure it out myself on the sewing machine, I could just give her a brief and she could turn that into a new design. And um, so the number of different shapes and the number of sizes that I was starting to carry was growing. So um, initially I thought, well, the company's called Tall Yarns and Tails. So I'll call the garments tails, tall yarns and tails, the garments. And people would find that very confusing. And they would also think that everything I made was for tall people uh, yeah, because the yeah. word tall was in the name. So I thought, well, tall yarns and tails, that, that's not going to work. And I, I 
didn't think that tales, as in T-A-L-E-S, tales, stories, would be a strong enough name to stand on its own as a, as a clothes brand, if you like, as a garment brand. And the other thing I always do, and I always have done, is layer my clothes a lot. And that's where the, the idea of layer cake comes from, together with the fact that the breadth of sizes I offer in the clothes is extremely wide. So I go from a UK size 8, which is EU size 36, all the way to a UK size 28, which is EU size 56. That's great. So I do very, very large, very large sizes. And because the idea with those first garments were that you would just throw them over the top of whatever you were wearing, like an apron, you would automatically be layering already. You know, so you'd have your own outfit on, throw one of my aprons over the top and, you know, go about your business and either do the work or, or you know, have a great day, go out, get married <laughs> even. There's people... There's there have been examples of people getting married in layer cake now. They look and sound so comfortable. Oh, they are. They are. They are super comfy because part of just throwing them over whatever you're wearing is that they're going to be loose fitting and comfortable. And that's why uh, people in bigger sizes find them so so comfortable to wear as well. And they're also made out of very sturdy fabrics. So they you, they literally won't split off your sides when you sit down, which is what happens with <laughs> cheap enough fabrics. I know. In, in large sizes. <laughs> so and so that's all of that together made for the idea of like, well, we're layering and for lots of different people. The the whole idea, the idea behind it was that it was inclusive. And and you know, that's where it was just like a, oh my gosh, layer cake, layer cake. I like that. You know, I was, I was I love it. Yes. coming up with, with words that had layer in it. And that's where layer cake then eventually come, came from. I love that idea. And I love the inclusivity about it. It's one of the conscious things that we work with uh, here in this podcast. We talk about that a lot, but also in my uh, conscious knitting club. Mm -hmm. inclusivity in sizes in people and yeah. different people yes so would you say that you run a, a conscious brand and if so in what other ways because I think you're using linen a lot is that a conscious decision for and if so for what reason yes so um, in, in terms of conscious brand yes where I want to go in the longer run is to properly and this this is purely a money issue and having the the money to to create the right imagery but i want to promote layer cake as a brand that is free of race sex age size anything i want it to be completely inclusive this was part one of my two-part interview with linda Tune in next time to listen to part two, where Linda talks more about her conscious decisions in her business, The Slow Wardrobe.